Well, John chapter 7, and uh, I'd like to read verse 53, and then it leads right in. Let me read the text. Our title today is The Woman Caught in Adultery, and uh, what a great, great text this is, especially in light of even the needs that we've just heard for the gospel. But look at 753. It says, they went each to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again in the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And they said... Uh, And this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let me pray, and we'll dive into the text. Father, we give you thanks and praise Father, for the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, thank you that that gospel is going forward in Albania. Thank you even for the picture today that we saw of the church just, I don't know, five hours ago or so, and when it was sent, and Father, you've gathered a group of people, and Father, it touches our hearts that in some ways we're part of that, whether we've gone or not gone, we've given And we've helped that ministry, Father, and we're grateful that you are in the business of sovereignly saving people and calling out those whom you have chosen from before the foundation of the world. We're grateful. So, Lord, as we turn our attention now to the Gospel of John and John 8, cause us to see, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and may you speak this word to us in your name. Amen. Now, as we approach this text... I do want you to know, maybe you can see it in your Bible. Let me just give you a word up front about this. The text comes, and I'm looking at my ESV Bible. I know you can't see it, but I'm sure it's in your Bible. I have double brackets around it. There's brackets that begin, that the publisher has supplied at 753. And then if you glance down, most likely in your text... There is a bracket, a double bracket, at closing that paragraph at 8.11. And you say, what, what are those brackets? And maybe it even has a footnote. My Bible in the ESV says some manuscripts do not include 7.53 through 8.11. Others uh, add the passage at different places and so forth. So there's a bracket there. So we need to just deal with that. You say, well, Scott, what, what is that? Well... Uh, I would say this, many of the early transcripts or manuscripts, would be a better way to say it, do not contain John 7, 53, down through 811. 
In other words, we have a rich, rich manuscript tradition. There are over 5,000 Greek manuscripts on the Word of God. These different manuscripts come in traditions and families, and they come in families of manuscripts, they call them, and they come in years and centuries. What we have here in John 7.53 down through 8.11 is that the earliest manuscripts do not contain this text. In other words, when you go back, always the Bible translators want to go to the earliest manuscript, and then there's later manuscripts. Um, And by the way, just let me say that all those manuscripts are about 99% all saying the same thing. None of the unique differences in those 5,000 manuscripts has anything to do with a doctrinal item. They are places and positions of apostrophes. But we come to this text where uh, it is not contained in the earliest manuscripts. And so the Bible translations have marked that for your understanding. In some manuscripts, this text in 753 through 811 appears in different locations. In fact, you'll find some manuscripts that it appears right after John 7, 36, right prior to him saying, if anyone thirst. Some manuscripts have it appearing in 21, 25, right there in John's gospel. Another transcript has it appearing at Luke 21, 38. And sometimes there's just a little different variation in the text. However, I would say to you that there is nothing Though in this text that is unworthy of its merit in Scripture, it is an absolutely wonderful account. In fact, as you begin to look at some of what the scholars say on these transcripts or manuscripts, it's fascinating. It could be that the foremost scholar of them all was a man by the name of Metzger, who was responsible for his translation of the Greek into the into the of the Greek New Testament. He said of this text, quote, it has all the earmarks of historical veracity. And so here, maybe the foremost scholar would say this is an accurate record. Westcott, another brilliant scholar, said, quote, it is beyond doubt an authentic fragment of apostolic tradition, end of quote. In other words, sometimes it's where they're placing it, but nobody is doubting the veracity of this. In fact, another man by the name of Zane Hodges said that this passage is found in a large majority of the surviving Greek manuscripts. You say, well, Scott, how many? About 450 manuscripts contain this passage. So as we come to this text, I would tell you that I support this text and this passage historically and the event that took place. In fact, I would go beyond that. I would say that this passage, without exaggeration, provides one of the greatest glimpses of the Savior in the entire New Testament. In fact, Jesus will reveal himself to be the wonderful Savior who is full of grace, who is full of mercy. And what is amazing in this text is that the central figure is not the adulterous woman that we just read about, It's not the hypocritical leaders that you'll see set a trap for Jesus, but rather the kindness and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, this passage is thrilling. 
It is a stunning account of the life of Christ. It is magnificent because it exalts him and it reveals his heart for this woman and therefore for any sinner. Now John provides the setting for us. Let's dive right into it. You can see it there in 753. It says there that they went each to his, his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. In other words, after the Feast of Tabernacles, after that last day of the great feast that we preached on last week, they each went to their own home. In other words, some might have traveled far away. Some might have just traveled back to their home locally. You remember that they were living in these tents and living in these booths as they celebrated the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a seven-day tradition, and it was remembering Israel's wanderings in the wilderness, and it was one of their greatest celebrations of the year. Well, that finished because you remember if you look back in 737, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirst. And he gave that great gospel invitation. Well, very well, after that day concluded, they each went back to their own house. In fact, it's interesting that Jesus didn't go back to his own house because presumably he didn't have a house. The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has what? Nowhere to lay his head. And so it says that he went there to the Mount of Olives. I was there just a year ago. The Mount of Olives is just east, if you will, of Jerusalem. And the text is clear in the setting. He is teaching again in the temple. And so he goes early in the morning and he begins teaching again. Some went back, but then others came to that temple. They were coming daily. And you can tell, as the text says, that it's early in the morning. And they are flocking to him. In fact, look at the text when it says there in 8.1, it says all the people came to him. And I just have to make a note there. He's just sitting down and he's teaching. There's no gimmicks there, just the word. And he sat down and he, sat down and he taught. And he taught one of the most dramatic displays of the grace of God and his love for sinners in the entire Bible. In fact, as he's teaching, there's going to be a trap that's set for him, and it was out of that trap that this profound truth comes to us. So what I want to do, very simply, is look at this marvelous account through three discoveries that magnify the grace of the gospel message, okay? Three discoveries, just as we move through the account, that magnify here the grace of the gospel message. We don't really need points, but if I could just hang some truth in this area on these discoveries, it might allow you to see it. But first, the trap is set. The trap is set. Look again down at the scripture at verse 3. It says that the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. There you have it. The scribes and the Pharisees are together. Now just a little nuance for you here. The scribes, this is the only place in all of John's gospel that the scribes are mentioned. We see the Pharisees all over. But the scribes and the Pharisees are the only place that they are put together is right here in John's gospel. The scribes, because we haven't discussed them yet, because they appear first here, are the lawyers of the law, if you will. 
They are the teachers of the law. They are the experts in the scripture. And when I say the scripture, of course, we mean the Old Testament scripture. They copied the scripture. They explained the law. And here they are known as the theologians of the day. The scribes are there. And, uh, and so this is kind of fascinating. It's interesting. I don't want you to get confused. Some scribes are Pharisees and some Pharisees are scribes. But not all of them go together. These are distinct classes of people, but some were in both roles. Now, the, the Pharisees, as you know, are titled Pharisees because the very word means the separated ones. This was a group of men that strictly adhered to the Mosaic law and all of its traditions. The Pharisees were responsible to apply the law. And I mentioned back in John chapter 3, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And at the time of Christ, Josephus tells us there's about 6,000 in number who were Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the dominant religious influence among the Jewish people. Certainly, they began with zeal, but they had fallen into utter hypocrisy. I mean, they were the conservative ones of the day. And maybe that's a positive way to say it. We could say that they were the legalist of the day. And the Pharisees throughout John's gospel, except for Nicodemus, are always pitted against the Lord in this gospel. They saw all the way through Christ's increasing popularity as a threat to their religion as a threat to their influence. Now, what do they do? Look at the text again in verse 3. They brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Stop there. If you can just put yourself back at this scene, back the day after the Feast of Tabernacle. It's early in the morning. Jesus is teaching. And as they're teaching, right in their midst, they bring this woman They drag, if you will, this woman before Christ right in the middle of his discourse. How utterly humiliating for her. How absolutely devastating for her. And I want to be clear here, the Pharisees aren't concerned with a woman. They're not concerned for the holiness of the word of God. They just want to expose this woman to Jesus Christ. And beyond just the woman, they want to catch Jesus in a trap. And so they bring her and they shove her right in the face and in the front of the Lord. They slam her, if you will, right down in the presence of Jesus Christ. So imagine that as he's teaching early in the morning, she is before Christ. She is before the crowd in all of her sin. This is brutal because they don't really care about her. They care about catching Jesus They set a trap for Jesus. Just a little footnote here. It's interesting that though they are zealous for God, or say they are zealous for God, but here this woman is brought to destroy the very Son of God. You say, what do they do? They bring her and then look what they say. Picked up the text in verse 4. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. I mean, this is intense. They're not talking about, I know so-and-so and and she's been caught, or I know so-and-so and and he's been caught. They drag her and slam her, if you will, right down in the midst of Christ. And they say that she's been caught in the act 
of adultery. I don't need to go into it full-fledged, but they're not talking about a woman talking to a man and whispering to a man. They had to get very particular as to what the law meant. She was caught in the very act of adultery. Now, beloved, we know this at Grace Church of the Valley. She, this woman, make no mistake about it, has broken the seventh commandment. The seventh commandment in the book of Exodus in 2014 says, You shall not commit adultery. I think that will come up on the screen. That is the clear teaching of Scripture. There it is. You shall not commit adultery. In fact, the Word of God goes on to tell us more about that. But you'll note, look again at the text in verse 5. They say to him, she's caught in the act of adultery. And then they say in verse 5, Now in the law of Moses... It commanded us to stone such a woman. And here's their question for Jesus. So what do you say? I think it's interesting, just a little footnote here. They use the scripture to accomplish their wicked attention. They point back to Exodus 20. Remember, these are the Pharisees. And remember, these are the scribes. They are the experts in the law. And they use the scripture, but they use it for the wrong purpose to actually catch Jesus. I heard a woman say this morning in one of our equipping classes, she has a friend and some friend of hers went to someone who is a palm reader and the palm reader was using the word of God. Well, and that doesn't surprise me. Always false teachers use the word of God to accomplish what they want. And so here this woman is caught in the very act and they said, hey, the law says you shall not commit adultery What are you going to say to her, Jesus? Now, beloved, the the Old Testament was very clear. There in Leviticus 20.10, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be, what? Put to death. This is what the Word of God says. In fact, look at the next slide. It says the same thing, in essence, in the book of Deuteronomy. Here it is in 22, and then in 22, 22, and 24. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall, you see it there, die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. Okay, and it says, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. Then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. And so here I would say, just acknowledging the scribes and certainly the Pharisees are right from their perspective of the law. Adultery is sin. Adultery is a violation of the seventh commandment. But beloved, as we pursue this a little more, there's something missing here. If she was caught in the act, do you not ask the question, where is the who? The man. So it's, 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 it's beginning to unfold here. I mean, how come he wasn't pulled in before the Lord and then exhorted to be stoned as well? He's nowhere in this scene. You say, well, Scott, what's their motive here? It's obviously not the woman. Look at verse 6. The motive is revealed. It says there, this they said to test him. In other words, back to 5, there's the question. So what do you say? Verse 6, this is... What they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Stop there just for a second. The woman, I believe this, may have been set up. I believe that. 
I believe that you have such hypocritical leadership here. I wouldn't put it beyond the scope of reality that she was set up in order to bring this trap to our Lord. They could have even planted the man. And you notice that he never appears, does he? And when they bring the woman to Jesus, she's caught in the very act. And then you're asking the question, where is the man? Either they might have planted the man or maybe they knew the man and didn't want to embarrass him. And so they bring this woman, they drag this woman, they shove this woman right in the face of Christ. Listen, I want to be clear with you. They hate Christ. We've seen this before. They're out to arrest him, mildly so. They're out to kill him. He's about six months away from Passover in April of 33, and they're going to do anything they can to catch him. And so they bring this test, and I believe it may have been even planned beforehand to catch Jesus. And the woman becomes their bait. It is very cruel. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if the crowd had rocks in hand, and they're ready to fire down on this woman. I mean, Jesus, what are you going to do with this woman? We have caught her in the very act, and so the trap is set. Let me, let me just articulate this a little bit further for you. Think about the trap in light of what was at stake here. If the Lord rejects, if you will, the law of Moses, and he simply forgave the woman, he would then condone adultery and fail to keep the law. I mean, would he, this is the trap, really set aside the law and set her free? And if he set her free and set aside the law, he would likely lose his credibility. They had just said in chapter 7, 40 and 41, this is the prophet. There was another group of people that said, this is the Christ. But on the other hand, beloved, if he condemned this woman, where would his compassion be? I mean, he claimed to be a friend of sinners. And if you're a friend of sinners, Jesus, how come you didn't call all sinners into account? I mean, maybe they're just testing him after the previous day when Jesus stood up and cried out and he said, if anyone thirst. And it wasn't just talking to the nation Israel. He said, if anyone. And maybe they're saying, Jesus, do you really mean anyone? And so maybe they put and concocted a trap and baited this woman and put her in a relationship and dragged her now early in the morning and put her right in front of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is a trap. It's a delicate one. Listen, if he condemned her to death, he would be in trouble because at that point, he would not only violate the law of Moses, which said to stone such a one, but even this way, he would violate the Roman law. Because the Romans taught that they had the exclusive right to execute the death penalty. I mean, only the Romans could put somebody to death. The Jews didn't have the power to do that. That's why when you fast forward to John 18, 31, they not only wanted to send Jesus to Caiaphas, but they wanted to send Jesus to Pilate. Because only Pilate would have the authority under Romans' jurisdiction jurisdiction to actually condemn him to death but you can see that the trap is set either way he's going to lose face with the jews if he lets her go 
or he's going to become a problem with the Romans for being an insurrectionist. So they've set this trap for him. It's kind of like, pick your poison. No matter how he answers the question, they think they've got him. They think they've actually trapped him. And here's the question, beloved. How could he be faithful to the law without putting this woman to death? But on the other hand, how could he show his grace and pardon her? But there's even a deeper question here, and I think it's the ultimate theological question for each of us. That's why this text is so profound. How does God harmonize his justice with his mercy? You've got two attributes of God that we've been learning at on Wednesday morning. Of all the attributes, how do you harmonize his justice with his mercy? If God is a God of justice and a God of holiness, then she must die. She's not kept the seventh command. On the other hand, if God is a God of love and a God of grace, she must live and be pardoned. That's the trap that is set. And so I ask you, how can God be a God of justice and at the same time forgive sin? And how can God be a God of love and then therefore not punish sin? How do you harmonize God's holiness with his mercy? I mean, certainly, beloved, right there on the screen in Ezekiel 18.4, the soul who sins shall, what? Die. We understand that from the book of Romans, that the wages of sin is what? Death. Death separates us from God. In fact, James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, he or she has become guilty of all. So here's the question for us this morning. How does Almighty God, who dwells in unapproachable light, give mercy to sinners without ever violating his character. I'll say more on that later. Jesus, what do you say? How did Jesus respond? Well, look at the text in 8.6. You've probably seen this before. It's a little bit bizarre. I mean, bizarre to us. It says in 6b, if you will, it says Jesus, now remember he's already sitting, right? In 6b, it says that he bent down And he wrote with his finger in the ground. Stop there just for a second. Can you imagine this? I mean, they basically drag her. They basically shove her. They basically slam her in his presence. He's sitting down teaching in the temple. And then they come and bring her in and say, what are you going to do? Because the law says this. And after they leave him in response, it says there in 6b that he looks down, if you will, and wrote with his finger in the ground. Now, what is he doing? Now, there is much ink that is spilled on that. I think it's fascinating that is the only place in all of the New Testament that says that he wrote, okay? It's the only place where you're going to see that expression. And I don't know quite exactly what he's doing, but it's as though he's drawing up a play like a quarterback would in the dirt in a football game on the sandlot. They're huddled around her, and he bends down and he begins to draw and put his finger in the ground. 
Now, we need to be careful of speculation here, but it's hard for me to resist what the meaning is, okay? Some say, and much ink spilled, I'll tell you some of the thoughts, that he was looking down and writing, they would say, because he was embarrassed, that because the woman embarrassed him. Here, he, he's God. He's God in the flesh. And they bring this woman who is a sinner into his presence, who was caught in the very act. And so he's looking down because the woman embarrassed him. I don't think that's it. Others say that he bent down and began to write with his finger in the ground because it was a ploy. It was a ploy for him to gain time so he could figure out what he wanted to say. Do you like that one? Now, I I have a tough time with that because he created the world by the breath of his mouth and said, let there be light, and there was light. I could hardly think that God himself who created the universe was was kind of waiting, and and so some would say it's kind of a divine doodling, okay? he's, He's trying to figure out, he's buying time on what to say. Others say that he was thinking about this scripture. It's an interesting thought that... O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, in the Hebrew, shall be written in the sand, for they have forsaken the Lord. And then look at the last line. The fountain of what? Living water. And he just said, if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me. And so some people take this as a fulfillment of the prophecy that when he went down to the ground, he was thinking of Jeremiah 17 and he was writing. It's an interesting thought. Others say, last one, I could go on and on, that just, this is interesting, and some people write much on this, that just as the finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments that were delivered to Moses, Jesus is now eclipsing Moses and his action declares to both the Pharisees and the scribes that they are speaking directly to the author of the law himself, Jesus Christ. So that as God wrote with his finger, both in the Ten Commandments, he wrote on the wall, you remember that count there in Daniel chapter 5, Jesus now bends down and he's beginning to write, if you will, or showing them who he is. Still others, and maybe you, maybe say, I, I, I know what he wrote. And my answer is, no, you don't know what he wrote. Nobody knows what he wrote. He bends down and he's writing with his finger on the ground. So number one, they set this trap. What is Jesus going to do? What do you say, Jesus? And I take you to the second discovery. Here, the truth is spoken. The truth is is spoken. Pick up the text in verse 7. It says there that they continued. Uh, One translation says they persisted to ask him. Now watch this. He stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be first to throw a stone at her. What a statement. You've heard that before. Let him who is without sin throw or cast their first stone. Maybe what you didn't know is that that's a direct reference to the scripture. You say it is? Yes, the law stated that the one who witnessed the crime back in the Old Testament should be the first one 
to cast the first stone. Let me see if I have this. And you can write this down and look. Look at the next slide. I think we have it in there. But you shall, and it talks about people who have been involved in apostasy. You shall kill him. And watch this. Your hand shall be the first against him to put him to death. And afterward, all the hand of the people. In other words, if you see people amongst the nation going apostate, calling other gods, worshiping, if you will, at the feet of Baal in that context, you shall be the first against him to put him to death. In other words, you saw it, you're a witness, you cast the first stone, then all the other people will do the same. Deuteronomy 17.7, the hand of the witnesses, those who saw the crime, or the violation of God's law shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So, beloved, here what Jesus is saying is only those who were not guilty of the same sin would be able to carry forth the execution. So Jesus says, and it's amazing. You mentioned he's sitting down, then he bends down, and he's writing. We don't know exactly what he's writing. But as they kept asking him, what will you do? He stands up and he looks at them and he says, if you are without sin, throw the first stone. Beloved, it's brilliant. He upholds the law of God, but he also upholds the woman's sin at this point. Okay, If you're without sin, cast the first stone. At the same time, it exposed the wicked and even hypocritical intentions of the religious leaders but watch what happens next this is this is incredible look at verse 8 after he says that to her it says and once more verse 8 he bent down and wrote on the ground you say well what's he writing did you catch that he did it twice he's writing then he he stands up and he looks at them if you're without sin cast it and then and then as time's delaying he goes back down to the ground now sprawl said it may that be maybe you've heard this, as he goes back to the ground that he looks at one of the religious leaders and he says embezzler to him. And he calls him on a sin. And it could be that another religious leader, as he's writing down, he looks at him and he says murderer. Or perhaps, as Sproul said, he looks up at Joseph and he writes Judy the woman that he was with. Or he looks up at Frank and he writes the name Sarah. In other words, he began to call him out. We don't know that. But it's an interesting thought because he said, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone, beloved. I think it's going to be like this at judgment day. None of us will be going to the rock pile to cast the first stone. So well, what happened after he began to doodle in the ground again? Well, look at verse 9. It says, but when they heard it, look at this. It says, they went away one by one, interesting, beginning with the older ones. That's very, very fascinating. They begin to go. In in other words, the thought of the language is they kind of go out one by one in a procession is the thought. Their conscience is pricked. None of them are without sin. And they just kind of slink away one by one. And yet I just want you to know as they slink away one by one, they do not repent. They're in the presence of God. And you think if they were really cut to the quick, they would have repented 
on the spot and said, tell us more. But they kind of slink away to come back later in chapter 8 and go after him again. Okay? So here, it's not wrong, beloved. We know this, to punish crime. But here what Jesus is doing is to call out, if you will, the hypocritical pretense of these leaders. So they go away to lick their wounds for another time. At some point, they suffered a devastating defeat. And the eldest was first to go. The eldest was first to disappear. I don't know why it's the eldest. But maybe you might think with me, maybe because they knew their sin more. And maybe they had a longer list on that grocery list of their own sins. And as soon as Jesus exposed that to them, or maybe as he's riding in the ground, they begin to go away because they recognize that none of them are worthy to cast a stone. And then the rest follow him. And then I want you to catch this. Don't miss this. Look at verse 9. It says that after they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, it says Jesus, picture this, was left alone with a woman standing before him. What a picture that must have been. He's left alone with the woman who's standing before him. Now, if you could just think on this just for a moment. They all left. And I believe it's just the woman and Jesus. It could be that the scribes and the Pharisees went out one by one and there's an outer crowd that could be. But I just kind of read that and think, no, they, they all left. And Jesus is there with the woman and she was, or Jesus was left alone with her. He was the only one, beloved, think about this, who met the qualification. So what qualification? He's the only one in the whole world that's without sin. He's the only one who can meet that qualification. So here's the discovery. The trap is set. Secondly, the truth is spoken. And here's the third and final discovery is the transformation is stated. The transformation is stated. What a moment this must have been. Glance down in your text again, right? Do you see it there? Jesus now, what does it say? Stood up. And he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? He says to her, don't think of woman as woman. Think about it as as an endearing term. He called his own mother woman at the cross for John the apostle to take care of her. Woman, behold your son. And she gave John the apostle the leadership of his very own mother. So when he says woman here, it's a respectful term. He says to her, has no one condemned you? How did she respond? Look at verse 11. She said, no one, Lord. Now, I just want you to note there, and I think you can understand this. It's the only words that she spoke. And she says, as you see there, no one, Lord. Okay? And in the Greek, that could either be kurios, he's the Lord Jesus Christ. But in some places in the Gospel of John, it just simply means sir. But I believe in this text, at that moment, that possibly her eyes were open 
to see him for who he is. She, beloved, if you can just picture this, is in the presence of the judge himself. She is in the presence of God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Now you might think that Jesus would have said, I am still here. You might have thought that he would say to her that I am here and I am without sin. But he doesn't. He said the kindest words that any human, if you take it in that sense, could ever articulate. This must be some of the most gracious words in all of the Bible. You say, well, what did he say to her? Look at verse 11. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I, what? Condemn you. These have got to be, beloved, the kindest and most gracious words you will ever hear. God, in the person of Christ, addressed her greatest need. He addressed the forgiveness of her sin. And we know, beloved, that only God can forgive sin, right? And he forgave her. He, if you could just picture this, took away her condemnation. I don't condemn you. Took away her guilt. Took her sin. Took her penalty that she deserved. Took away her shame. And beloved, I would say this is, this is how each of us stand before God, do we not? We are guilty. We are naked. We are ashamed. And God Almighty in the person of Christ has covered your shame. He has covered your nakedness. He has come on the spot and declared you righteous. He justifies you. He covers you, if you will. He clothes you in that righteousness. And I believe right here that Jesus Christ forgave this woman based on his death on the cross that would take place in six months. He said, neither do I condemn you. Do you remember earlier I asked, how does God satisfy his holiness and justice against sin, but at the same time forgive us and then give us his mercy and his grace? Well, the only way that God can preserve his righteous anger against sin and yet spare this woman by his grace is in the sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Beloved, here is the profound gospel. The condemnation that we deserved fell on who? Christ on the cross. Christ becomes on the cross your substitute for sin and your sin is judged in in him in your place. The punishment that you deserve, that I deserved, fell on him. And God's justice and his love are both satisfied. Perfect love and perfect justice meet at Calvary. Remember, Paul said this in Romans 8.3, what the law could not do, 
weak as it was in its own flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The sin problem, your sin problem, my sin problem was dealt with in the death of Jesus Christ. Think about what he said to this woman, neither do I condemn you. Listen, if you're in Christ this morning, he doesn't condemn you. If you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, he's justified you. He's declared you righteous. He's forgiven you for all your sins. And right now, you're not condemned either. I'm thinking of that statement in Isaiah 53. He has borne our griefs. Think about it this way. He has carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are what? Healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each have turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid the iniquity, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. Beloved, this is the gospel. Amen. He forgave this woman. I don't know why I had that old hymn. I mean, it's an old hymn. I don't think we ever sing it. It sounds actually a little country, actually. So it has a little twang to it. But do you remember some of you older saints at Calvary, years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not that my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died on what? Calvary, right? Mercy there was grace was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. And it says at the end there, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. So Jesus, what does he tell her then? It's not all he said to her. I'm so glad there's one more statement. Does he tell her, listen, I condemn you no more. Just continue in your lifestyle. No. Does he say to her, go sin that grace might increase? No. Look at the last statement. You know it. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, what? Sin no more. In other words, leave your life of sin. He commanded the woman to stop sinning. Be done with that life. Sin no more. From now on, don't carry on that way. Because I pardoned you and I freed you from its slavery. So here are, beloved, three discoveries that magnify the grace of the gospel message. The trap is set, the truth is spoken, but the transformation is stated. Listen, this is the gospel. It says in Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore no, what? Condemnation. For us in Christ Jesus. You may even be here and feel like I'm this woman. You may be as a man and think that describes me. Listen, if you've come to Christ, then neither do I, Jesus says, condemn you if you've come to faith. And then he tells us and he gives us the marching orders to go and sin no more. Live in the newness of life. Live in the sanctification that he called you to. In fact, Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised and who is at the right hand of God, 
and he's interceding for us. Listen, this is a marvelous picture of the grace of God. Listen, on the one hand, he becomes the just and the justifier of those who come to faith in Christ. So how does this become mine? Well, this becomes yours through faith. As you come to Jesus Christ by faith in his blood, in other words, Romans 3.25 on the cross, he declares you righteous in his sight. That's my prayer for you this morning.